Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Good morning. And we are part three of the same chapter. And are we going to be able to finish it today? <laughs> yeah, I think so. I think so. It's a, it's a big chapter. There's a lot, a lot to discuss in here. So last week where we left off, we really talked a lot about the condition of sinners who are outside the wall after the great white throne judgment. We kind of applied that to um, understanding, like how would you guys summarize it? Understanding the result of what happens in them when God reveals unveiled glory as a result of their choices. We really kind of touched on that a lot. Um, and then we drew a line right across page 159. So maybe we'll pick it up there, that, that paragraph before it. Remember that the text in Revelation says, Fire comes down from God out of heaven and devours them. That's a quote. There is biblical evidence that this fire does not kill them, but that they are already dead. And this fire, this fire devours only their dead bodies. And then we're going to look into some Second Chronicles 7.1. That kind of like ties into where we were last week. Before we get into it even more, did anybody have a chance to just kind of reflect or think about last week's conversation and just did any kind of marinate? Or any interesting insights come to you? Or additional questions or anything like that? Based on what you just said, to then that's just that's cremation. Cremation? You know, yeah, if they're yeah. already dead. And then the fire comes down and just you know, devours, like it says, devours them on the zero. That's just like heavenly cremation. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> well, let's check it out. Uh, can I have a volunteer read us 2 Chronicles 7 1? <clears throat> when Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. As we studied in a previous lesson about the sanctuary services, the sacrifices were to teach that sin kills. The sacrifice being killed by the sinner was dead before being placed on the altar and burned. No sacrifice in the temple services was ever burned alive. A text from Isaiah confirms this concept. Right, so sin kills, not fire from God kills. Right, that's one thing we can we can draw out of that. That idea. Yeah, Isaiah 66, 24. You want to go ahead and continue with that? And they shall go forth and look upon the corpses of men who have transgressed against me, for their worms, for their worm does not die, and their fire is not quenched. They shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Mm. How do we interpret that? Oh, that's pretty gruesome. Oh, Jesus referred to this fire that would not be quenched, Mark 9, 43. And note again, the fire is burning corpses, dead bodies, not living people. Okay. Oh. Any more thoughts on that? So the author here connects it to well, some things we learned about in the last lesson that like intense emotional pain and stress can cause painful suffering and ultimately death. And that is what, you know, when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he experienced intense emotional pain to the point that he was sweating blood from his forehead. And that's a medical condition. I don't know what the name of it is. Um, 
but that's that's a thing that happens. And then also when the soldier pierced his side, blood and water poured out, we, we learned about that too. Intense emotional strain caused that. So check out this next thing. This is a really interesting uh, piece of evidence. During uh, This is from religionnewstoday.com. During the January 17, 1994 Northridge, Los Angeles earthquake, over 100 Californians literally died of fright. This was the conclusion of Robert Cloner, cardiologist at Good Samaritan Hospital in Los Angeles. Apparently, a terrorized brain can trigger the release of a mix of chemicals so potent it can cause the heart to contract and never relax again. Scared him to death. <laughs> Legitimately. Legitimately. <clears throat> oh my goodness. <clears throat> I think the key thing in there is is just the the psychological stress so severe that it causes the brain to, to do that, right? So it's not so let's let's think about that. There's there's a truth in life that we can choose our own experience. Right? We all have the power to choose our own experience. You have the person who's being burned at the stake is screaming for their lives. Or you have the martyr who's being burned at the stake and is singing a hymn, peaceful and quiet. Right? Both of those two people are choosing different experiences based on who and what and where they place their trust, essentially. Right? So in this situation, there is an external thing happening, an earthquake. But the experience that some people chose was so severe that it created problems in their brain that killed them. And there are others who were probably fine. So the idea, the idea about this is... And we were connecting this from last week's conversation. At the great white throne judgment, God reveals what? Himself. Himself. His character. His character. The unveiled glory. Based off of who and what a person has chosen to put their trust in, determines the experience they have. Mm -hmm. Right? Because in that example that they gave, the Northridge thing, I think this makes sense, the earthquake itself... Like, if you stand in the middle of an open field, the earthquake's not going to kill you. Right? It's circumstances surrounding that, based on were you in the building, were you not, whatever it could be. So, I guess what I'm driving at is, is like, what does that say about the kind of person God is? To the point that there's no external thing being applied to you that ends your life. It's from inside yourself that ends your life. To tie into that, during Soviet Stalin, during Stalin's regime, there's a guy named Alexander Solzhenitsyn. He's a psychologist, and he wrote a book about his time in concentration camps. And he said the difference between people who were prisoners that died versus the prisoners that survived and then actually ended up thriving post-concentration camp wasn't the fact that they were treated differently in the camp. It was the fact that they had a greater vision and something that they were looking forward to after the camp. It, it kept their hope alive. 
So people who had no hope, they eventually died. Or were killed. They, they gave up their life to die. They resigned themselves. But those who said, after this, there's so much more waiting for me, survived. It was one of the determining factors on it. And I think that that actually kind of applies here. If you're a person that you believe, you trust in yourself, there's nothing, there's not a grander vision that you're focusing on. You're not putting your trust in something that's so much bigger than yourself. Then your experience is, what do you guys think of that? Do you think it applies? think it connects well yeah because you're one you're internalizing you when you don't have anything else to reach out for when you've lost hope you're just looking at yourself so mm -hmm. it's you know you're not you're not looking forward to anything you know, you've, yeah. you've, you've given up, essentially. Right, yeah. And then those that, you know, just like in your example, <clears throat> if they had something outside of them, mm -hmm. you know, to look forward to or to pray to mm -hmm. or whatever, whatever it is that kept them going, something, a goal, whatever it was, that, you know, they were mostly able to, you know, make it or, yeah. you know, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And then another thing I thought about, I'm sorry, just talking, is, you know how when people are together, how if someone gets hysterical, it's so easily for the rest of the group to get hysterical. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, because we play off of each other's feelings and, you know, mm -hmm. You know, it, it's, it gets contagious almost, right. and you know, that could be some of the ways that some of those, you know, like what you were talking about, 100 people dying when they sh they could have lived, you know what I mean? It could have been something like that situation where one person was hysterical to the point of not being able to calm themselves, which gave this person other fear. It's contagious. Yes. Yeah. I'm trapped. Uh, Frank, you had a comment. You know, <clears throat> when I was in the Navy, the last 10 years I worked with Spec War. And so I wasn't an operator or seal anything, but I worked right with those guys. You know, and so, and you would think that, you know, when you think of a Navy SEAL, you think of a big, strong, you know, guy that physically is strong. Um, but most of those guys that, that fit that scenario failed out, did not make it. It wasn't physical strength. It was determination that, you know, most of the SEALs that I talked to, you know, would be guys on my side and whatnot. I'm like, how did you make it? I just wasn't going to give up. You know, just have hope, if you will, that kind of stuff that you would think, you know, and a lot of SEALs are big and strong. Don't get sure. me wrong. You know, sure. I mean, they're training and they're, you know, the things they go through. But, you know, I was there and watched these guys go through training and said, you know, they break all of you. There's nobody strong enough <laughs> to do it. You know, there's yeah. just not. Yeah. You know, it's all about pushing you past your limits and then being able to, you know, still muster up as opposed to ringing out and that kind of stuff. Anyway, it was, yeah. it was a neat experience to see mm -hmm. them and to talk to some of the guys that, you know, operator that had made it and just, you know, because it's one of the hardest yeah. things to do, you know, in the, mm -hmm. in the world, I think, or whatever they say, you know, like two at, only two out of 10 make it or something. I mean, you know, mm -hmm. the, the dropouts are very high, very intense, very, very tough training, but it's more 
mental, if you will, determination than it is physical strength. You know, it's not an ability that you can physically see. It's got to be that, you know, I'm going to do this. You can't, you know, there's nothing you can do to me to make me break. And, you know, just this determination that these guys had and wanting it so bad. And Paul talks about that too. I don't know where, but I, <clears throat> I think it's Paul. He talks about that idea of like life using the analogy of like an endurance race. We right. run the race for the hope set before us, you know, so... Right. So we're not focused on here. Like we're always looking for the hope, the the you know eternal life, the hope, the the vision, the the mission, the purpose, the calling, the higher thing, and that's what always brings us this way. And the truth is that when Jesus says in John seventeen, "I pray that they be one as we are one," may they be one in us. That's the hope that we are one with God. Right. You know, we accurately reveal and demonstrate His character in our lives. We are one with Him. Um, that's that's beautiful. Jumping in here to talking about how people can kind of, from within themselves, bring about this idea of death. Isaiah 33, 10 through 12. Now I will rise, says the Lord. Now I will be exalted. Now I will lift myself up, which is referring to the great white throne judgment. You shall conceive chaff. You shall bring forth stubble. Your breath, Hebrew word for ruach, which also means spirit or character. That's a really interesting piece to connect there. Your breath, or your spirit or character, as fire shall devour you. Now that, let's pause there for a second. The Hebrew word meaning your character will devour you. Your character will devour you. That's really interesting. And the people shall be like the burnings of lime. Like thorns cut up, they shall be burned in the fire. So, the author comes on to talk about the idea of like short stalks that are left in the field are what gets burned after the harvest. The stubble is dead. So he's making this connection that the wicked conceive or they bring forth stubble. In other words, as a woman conceives and brings forth a child from within her body, the wicked in the same way conceive and bring forth a spirit or nature within themselves that becomes as dead stubble. Right? He's using that to just kind of really support the idea that it's not God that's devouring you. You're bringing forth what devours you from within yourself based on your character, based on your choices. So let's look at this next passage. This is really important. Verse 14 in Isaiah 33, verse 14. The sinners in Zion are afraid. Fearfulness has seized the hypocrites. Who among us shall dwell with the devouring fire? Who among us shall dwell with everlasting burnings? Right? What's the devouring fire in the text? Anybody know? What's the devouring fire? God, God's fire. God's fire, right? Hebrews 12, 29, our God is a consuming fire. It's the very presence of God himself. So who can live in the literal presence of Almighty God? Who can dwell in the, as 1 Timothy 6.16 says, in the light which no man can approach unto? Verse 15. He who walks righteously and speaks uprightly, he who despises the gain of oppressions, who gestures with his hands, refusing bribes, who steps, who stops his ears from hearing of bloodshed and shouts his eyes, shuts his eyes from seeing evil. Let's let that, like, connect with that for a little bit. 
The righteous hath been changed, their corruption, putting on incorruption, he's referring to 1 Corinthians 15, 53, at the second coming of Christ, they can live in God's literal presence, and they will rejoice as they see him face to face. Verse 17, your eyes will see the king in his beauty, they will see the land that is very far off. Process that. Talk about that. What does that mean? Moses in Exodus said, God, I want to see you. And God says, no one can see my face and live. And then you get to 1 John. And John says, we will see him face to face because we will be like him. And according to Isaiah 33, the place of everlasting fire is the very presence of God. And what Christianity teaches is the place that you don't want to go is the place of everlasting fire. But the Bible teaches that the place of everlasting fire is the very presence of God, and you dwell in it, right? What is it? Is it Ezekiel? Somewhere? Oh, man, I should... It's impossible to memorize the whole Bible. I get super frustrated sometimes. But like in describing Lucifer, you know, you were among the fiery stones of God. You were a covering cherub in the very presence of, you know, it's like describing this, you know, our God dwells in inapproachable light. I'm picturing that as being, you know, my mind is shifting a little bit when we think about like God is a consuming fire or the fiery stones. <clears throat> Our human brain looks at fire as being, being hot and destructive. Like consuming combustible material. Kind Correct. Of, right? yeah. But if we are, we've been learning and believing about God's unending love. So somehow I'm picturing that fire not as being destructive, but being more, more warmth, more comforting because it's a, it's a glory and not, not a hot burning destructive fire. Does that make sense? Mm. Yeah. I think it also depends on, you know, what you're burning, right? Because you put, you know, impure gold in fire and it refines it. Mm -hmm. Right. So I think if, you're burning something that is, you know, not everlasting, right? It's going to be destroyed. But if you're burning something that can't be burned, then it actually can purify it. Can purify it. Create something better. Yeah. Um, I read a book about a certain thing. I don't want to get too weird, but in, like, poems or books and stories or dreams, fire is often... Uh, symbolically represents life, not destruction. Like I've never heard people say fire is destruction, even though it can seem that way in real life. Yeah. But usually, when people talk about a flame or a candle or something, like that that symbolically represents something good. Well, and you can apply that to the biblical text, right? Yeah. Because God's described as fire, and fire is love and truth and light, right? Yeah. yeah. And, and this is like this is something that has been like throughout all mm -hmm. all time, pretty sure. much, like old yeah. old books and. The day of Pentecost in Acts, when the Holy Spirit was poured out upon the disciples in tongues of fire. Tongues of fire. Tongues of fire. Well, I mean, now people will light a candle or, you know, something to remember, mm -hmm. you know, a positive, you know. Yeah, yeah. Fire needs air, and air is life. 
There you go. Nice, nice. Good connection. Check out top of page 162, that first paragraph. <clears throat> On the other hand, when the wicked witness the glory of God revealed, they will perish. Not because God lashes out at them in anger, but because they cannot bear the reality of what they are compared to what Jesus is. The enormity of their guilt will crush them. As we saw in the last lesson, the clearest evidence of how the sinner dies is seen at the cross. Do you all agree or disagree with that last statement? The last, the clearest evidence of how the sinner dies is seen at the cross. I'm not sure I understand what he's saying. The last lesson yeah. was focused on the, the on the premise that most of Christianity believed that Jesus died the death of a sinner. And so he said, okay, so let's follow that premise and let's learn how, in fact, did Jesus die? He what, died of a broken heart. What happened to Jesus? And he died actually quicker than they had expected. Absolutely. Because the enormity was so, the, the, the weight was so much, he just, he couldn't take it. And when you read the text, did, did Jesus cry out, my God, my God, why are you killing me? Why are you torturing me? Why are you burning me? Why are you letting me go? Why did you give me up? Why did you forsake me? In 2011, I don't have the exact source. In 2011, the Seventh-day Adventist quarterly, Sabbath School quarterly, was talking about the death of Jesus. And it was actually written in the lesson that at the death of Jesus on the cross, the fire of God came out and burned the sacrifice of Jesus. Do you read anywhere in the Bible that a fire from God came out and burned Jesus on the cross? No. No. Not nowhere. Right? And that, so the, I, I say that not in any way to to put any kind of negative, you know, lens on the Adventist church because I love the Adventist church. That's not what I'm getting at. But it, it reveals how Satan has distorted the whole idea that the death of the sinner is something that God does to you versus the reality of the situation, something that you have chosen for yourself. Well, and, and then also, and, and clearly he wasn't because they came and prepared his body. Right. They right. put their perfumes and their essences and their herbs and sure. all the things that they did for their burial rites. They right. did that to him in yeah. his physical human form. Mm -hmm. When they so, came back to check on his body, uh-huh, right? Like, right. and that's when they found the stone removed. Mm -hmm. So, like, they expected something physically to be there. Mm -hmm. and, we, and we do find burned, the story. There would be no thing. And we right. do find the story in the Old Testament, where I think the two dudes, what was it, Hophni and Phineas, the priest's sons, mm -hmm. and the Old Testament came and offered, you know, pagan incense or was mocking the whole system. The Bible actually says the fire of God came out and consumed them, and they died. But when you read the text, they came in there and they carried them out still in their tunics. Right? So this wasn't fire that like burned their clothes off and their skin and charred them like someone getting like yeah, someone getting burned in a car fire. Right? It was the the it it was almost like the a small picture of what it's gonna be like after the White Throne Judgment, exactly what we're learning. Presence. God's presence came out, the love and truth, and because of the choices they made to be rebellious in character, they couldn't dwell in that fire. Ooh, I have a tangent. 
But it tangent. applies. <laughs> it, it applies in a way because now this all makes me think. Mm-hmm. If we are changed in order to be in God's presence, mm-hmm. then when that rebellion in heaven was happening, mm-hmm. were they actually thrown out? Or did they have to physically leave? Because now they're changed from the presence of God, of, of, of his glory. They're not the same anymore, even though they're beings that are more magnificent than we are. Right. You know what I mean? Something something changed. Meaning, like, did God arbitrarily, or not arbitrarily, did God push them out and they wanted to stay? Or did they choose to leave because they didn't want to stay? You know what I mean? Like, they couldn't. They, they couldn't, couldn't be there because oh, in his presence, honestly, they're different, right? They're changed. They're not the same. Interesting. Or you're telling me that evil, those evil angels could face God now and not be destroyed. I, I don't see that happening. Hmm. Interesting. Sorry. No, that's Interesting. a really good thought. <laughs> Well, let's jump down two more paragraphs, um, still on page 162. Let's change this around rather than, you know, we're kind of, we're, right now we're kind of focusing on the result of the wicked and what happens there. But let's flip it around. When we look back into the father's face as his lost children die, what will we see? I think this is a really crucial question. Will we see a vengeful, vindictive God? crying out, now at last, my judgment is says, but now you get what you get. Finally! Will he be smiling? Will he be having this weird look on his face of like, you got what's coming to you? Will it be severe? Or will we see, as we saw in Jesus, weeping and crying over Jerusalem, how I've loved you, how I've always wanted to gather you and protect you. What do you think you'll see? Tears. Because he's a father losing his children forever. Children that he still loves, but that don't love him. And they don't want to be in his presence. That's heartbreaking. I think in the New Testament, Paul writes, Comfort those with the comfort you yourself have received from the comforter, right? So who's the comforter? John describes it, the Holy Spirit. I will send you the comforter, right? The Holy Spirit. So Paul says, comfort others with the same comfort you have received from God. And what I think, my personal view is on that day, the the innumerable, unnumerable multitude of people who will be in the city will rally around God and comfort him and try to build him up with the same kind of comfort that they understand he gave to them their whole life. They'll pour right back into God in that moment. They will see the depth of heartache and and despair and sadness to the point that we will have an opportunity to support, encourage, and comfort God. That's a beautiful picture. But also wanted to add in there that you know, we as brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers and cousins and friends will also be losing. Mm-hmm. And we will also be weeping mm-hmm. the loss of our, yep. you know, family, yep. friends, whatever. Yep. 
You know what I mean? So it's we're comforting almost each other for a very great loss. Let's change gears just a little bit here and let's read Second Peter 3, 10 to 13 because it's really important that what we're not saying is that there won't be a fire that actually burns and consumes, right? Is someone willing to read that for us, Second Peter? But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with great noise and the elements will melt with fervent, fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it be burned up. Therefore, since all things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for a hastening and coming of the day of God, because of, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will, will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. What do you think of that? What do you pull out of that, Seth? I don't know. That's too many, too many big words. <laughs> well, you know, it's in the end, right? Peter's talking about you're looking forward to something bigger, right? You're looking forward to the new heaven and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. So is this verse talking about when the city comes down I, I don't know I mean it's if if this is happening when Jesus returns the first time it talks about um, the heavens pass away with a great noise the elements melt with a fervent heat um, the earth and its works are burned up um, everything's dissolved Um, everything melts with fervent heat so I'm having a hard time figuring out okay is that happening when Jesus comes the first time or is he actually talking about when the city descends mm. you know I mean I, I guess I guess it could be either one because the because those that are alive when Jesus comes if you're saved or not saved if you're not saved you would be destroyed and wait till till the second resurrection. So I guess that would be okay too. Okay, I, I resolved that in my brain. <laughs> I had to talk through that. <laughs> that's good. So that's okay. <laughs> yeah, I, I personally apply it to after like the second death experience because you're gonna have you know, Revelation describes Satan and a, a multitude of the sands of the sea and they build implements of war to come attack the city, like it's this whole big thing, right? So then you have the, the God reveals his presence, every knee shall bow, confess that he is Lord, and then they give themselves up and they all perish. And now God's got to do something with all of that. So he, he cleanses it, melts everything down, fresh slate, we're starting over. It's like you take a bunch of, in my world, you take a, you have, take a, look, take a scrap load of, a truckload of scrap material to the scrap yard and they are going to recycle that and they're going to melt it all down and get all the impurities out and leave you at the end of this process with a clean, pure ingot of steel or aluminum or whatever it is. Or element. Exactly. To then recreate something new out of it. Right. So 
just a way to kind of look at it like that. We'll jump into to Revelation a little bit here, and then we'll kind of start closing this lesson out. Um, Revelation 21, 1 through 5 gives us a, another kind of really big picture of what we're talking about. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. So again, one thing that we're focusing on is the death of the wicked. Second death, the eternal death of the wicked. So the author brings this out. No more sorrow, no more pain, no more crying. How can this statement be true if there's a place somewhere where the wicked are suffering in agony and pain as they burn for eternity? Yeah. It doesn't really fit. It doesn't fit. So let's 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 fill in the blank right here in this very last verse. First Peter one, three through five. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away reserved in heaven for me us you can write your name in there reserved in heaven for me and i really like what the author writes here you have a personal invitation we have a personal invitation from god And we're free to choose. Any final thoughts about all that? The author kind of wraps this up here in the second to last paragraph on page 164. When God finally unveils his glory before the entire universe no longer shielded by his grace, sinners will perish because of what they are and not because God is punishing them by slowly burning them to death. The very fire that consumes the wicked is a good fire that actually gives life. That's what you said, or Seth. It is an everlasting fire that we never want to go out. I think it's cool how they ended it with kind of like a Jordan Peterson saying where mm -hmm. they talk about it's kind of like oh you are you are fulfilling or you can fulfill the hero archetype kind of thing we're all main characters kind of thing I think that's cool makes me feel special yeah that's awesome man The more that I am learning about the Father, you know, the more that my um, years of 
other training or other learning is broken away. And I learn more and more just about the true character of the father. It's, uh, it's just changing my heart. Mm -hmm. um, you know, feeling more, you know, more closer. That's not good English. Feeling closer to, to God, closer to the whole spiritual entity that's there. Um, you know, just realizing just how much the Father just loves us so much. Um, you know, and just dispelling all those false teachings that, um, you know, he's this big scary being. Jesus has to stand between us and him or we'll be destroyed. You know, the Father's not going to look at us directly. Um, just all of that. Just realizing that that's just not true. I was just reading in John 16 this week, and Jesus says, You don't need me to be your advocate, for the Father himself loves you. Mm -hmm. We can go straight to the Father. Mm -hmm. uh, and just realizing all those years of those that false teaching, things that I've always questioned, mm -hmm. that just never seemed to add up to me. Mm -hmm. um, it's just changing my heart. Mm -hmm. That's what it's doing. Like it's opened up these doors, these channels that you never were allowed to see because you believed this way. But once you started seeing some of these truths that have opened up to you, then all of a sudden a bunch of other things are like, wait a second. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Graham Maxwell has this really awesome quote that I love it. It says, um, we aren't forgiven. Um, we aren't forgiven once we, we repent. We repent once we realize that we have already been forgiven. Been forgiven. Yeah. And, you know, and these ideas that we have to be perfect by probation time. Because if we're not perfect, because we're living in those times without an advocate, you know, we're not going to make it to heaven and just it's just false it's just false teaching jesus says he says himself i will never leave you or forsake you he says i never will there's just so there's just so many things like that that i'm like you know anyway it's just changing my brain and my heart and how i see and hear things Anyway. Your experience with the Bible term sanctification. Yeah, just the heart seeing change, a whole that new, growth. Yeah. Just yeah. a whole new picture of God. Yeah. Yeah. Completely different. You know, yeah. it's just different. You know, the end of time isn't something we have to be afraid of. We so, don't have to fear that so. time where we think we're walking alone. It's just not true. So. It's just not true. So. So. Yeah. The, uh, to close this whole chapter out, we've been talking about it now for three weeks, which is pretty pretty amazing. We did an exhaustive dive into this concept, and so number one, I just I really really hope that everyone just really comes away with that knowledge that it's not God that kills the sinners; it's their choice that consumes yeah. them. Yeah. And it really puts God in amazing light. And so, just like there's so many, Satan has done such a great job at distorting 
and corrupting um, how the wicked die and God's involvement or not involvement in that, right? Likewise, he's done the same thing at distorting how people are saved and mm -hmm. how God saves people. And so that's what we're going to get into next week. We're going to start a lesson that really digs, digs really deep into this idea of the truth about God and how people are saved and God's involvement or not involvement in it, right? Same idea. So I think it's going to be really good for us when we open that chapter. So yeah, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just praise you and we thank you so much for the truth about who you are, the truth about reality, design law, your character. Thank you so much that you are a God who is tirelessly working to heal us, to restore us. Thank you that you are a God of love, that you are a God of truth, and that you leave people free to determine for themselves what they experience and what they choose within their own character. There's nothing to be afraid of a God like that. There's nothing to be afraid of a person like that. So I just ask that these truths will just continue to generate within us the, the, the healing and a greater openness in our hearts and minds to receive the, the Holy Spirit. May we carry this message this week in our hearts and apply it, give us, give us opportunities to apply it in our lives. In your name, amen.